Welcome to Gigami, the podcast for up-and-coming musicians who are serious about turning their talent into a career. I'm Dave Holly. I've toiled in the trenches of the music industry, man and boy, for more than 30 years. Each week I talk to an artist or exec about their experience of how the industry really works and what you can do to give yourself the best chance of breaking into it and build a good life and make a good living while creating the fantastic music you were put on earth to create. If you have any questions or just want to get in touch with me, go to gigami.co. That is G-I-G-O-M-I dot C-O. I will always reply. Until then, on with the show. Today's guest is Katie Tunstall. Katie is a Scottish singer-songwriter. She exploded onto the scene in 2004 with the song Black Horse and the Cherry Tree and the album Eye to the Telescope, which went on to sell 4 million copies and make her an international star. She's released six further studio albums, all hits, and regularly contributes songs to major movies. She was Best British Female Solo Artist at the 2006 Brits, has won an Ivor, and been Mercury and Grammy nominated. I hope you enjoy the conversation and find it useful. So, Katie, thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast. Uh, How are you today, by the way? It's a pleasure, first of all, and I'm very well, thank you. I'm in Topanga Canyon in Los Angeles. Which sounds quite nice. It's the kind of place where you can pretend you don't live in a city. Yeah. But up a large hill covered in trees and bobcats and mountain lions. It's excellent. I'm talking to you at the moment in, in April in London, which is sunny but, but quite cold. Is it is the weather nice and warm there? Actually, overcast. You've got the sun oh, today. Okay. <laughs> well, that makes a change. Yeah. Okay. Could, could I start by asking you a question? What What sort of music was playing in your house when you were growing up? Very little. My parents weren't big music fans. And also my younger brother was born profoundly deaf. So his life was made a bit more difficult if there was background noise. And so music-wise, my dad had a really, really limited collection of C90 albums on cassette tape. And he had Billie Holiday, which was great. I didn't like it when I was young, but I love her now. Um, Billie Holiday, he had Tom Lehrer, who was like a satirical mathematician from Harvard who sang in the style of Gilbert and Sullivan. And he's a genius, actually. Table of Elements is um, is a masterclass in rhythm and rhyme. He had the, the, the Chariots of Fire soundtrack. <laughs> I, I st- because the beach in St Andrews where I grew up is where they where they filmed that running scene. Oh right, yes. And so I still I still go back to Vangelis for references when I'm making records because it's so nostalgic for me that sound. The B side of that is of that of that major theme tune is amazing, by the way. Um, and then a bit of Bach and a bit of Mozart, and that was it. So how, how did you get, get into music? The stuff that was coming to me, I loved watching Top of the Pops every Thursday, I think it was. And I loved, you know, when I'd hear stuff on the radio, my dad, mom and dad listened to Radio 4. They never listened to music radio. So it was really kind of more the kind of uh, just the atmospheric pop pressure around me where I would kind of hear it in on the bus or in a shop or whatever and then watch it on TV. And then my dad got um, a satellite dish when we were when I was 15. And I, that our battle ensued of him trying to watch rugby and me watching MTV. And um, MTV was uh, really changed my uh, 
um, it really just overnight expanded my knowledge of what I liked. Because I'd grown up on that amazing 80s pop music. I mean, some of the best songs ever written and just so flamboyant and kind of uninhibited. But none of it ever really wanted, made me want to do it, mm. you know. I think Kim Wilde was probably the closest where I was like, wow, that looks cool. <clears throat> and I loved her. But it was really seeing Beck, actually, on MTV. Loser had come out. And it was this weird lo-fi video and it just was sort of, you know, splicing up his guitar and samples and, excuse me. <clears throat> and I just fell in love and, and the Stone Roses, Fool's Gold was out around the same time and I was like, okay, that that makes sense to me. Were you making music? How, how did you get into that? I mean, I'd started, I'd asked my parents for a piano when I was four years old. Oh, precocious. Very. And it was just a very kind of, natural talent for me to play instruments so I did that all through my childhood but I really wanted to act I joined a little acting group and I was really into performing and that was my first experience of performing and then there was just a convergence of the two when I got to about 15 16 and I was getting a bit more serious about acting and I'd been doing a project with the Royal Shakespeare Company and a great organization called Scottish Youth Theatre you know we were doing we were doing Midsummer Night's Dream and I was playing Puck and it was really cool. And But I just wasn't that taken with the idea of being directed and just saying someone else's words. And I'd, the music had started I'd, at 15 at the same time I picked up guitar for the first time and realised that this was my instrument and this was the... It was just because I could I could be percussive as well on a guitar in a way that I couldn't be on a piano and rhythm was because, you know, rhythm was always a really favourite part of music for me. And I'd actually been a tap dancer as a kid as well, which I think from a kind of, um, what's the word? When you can move everything separately in time. <laughs> it's called coordination. And from a coordination point of view, I think tap dancing was actually really, and from a rhythm training point of view, tap dancing was amazing as a kid because it's so precise and it really pushes you to to be able to you're you're basically drumming with your body, you know. So that was really good training, I think. And then all of those things just converged, and I just started writing songs on piano. I was loved creative writing and poetry, but I didn't write songs really a bit, a little bit on the piano. But they were so cheesy that I didn't, um, I didn't, it didn't excite me that much. And so that at fifteen, that was when it all sort of happened. When I started listening to music that I loved myself and playing guitar and also kind of shifting from performing in a theatre to music. Was it different than writing on a guitar to writing on a piano? Well, I'd had 12 years of training on piano, of, of sort of trying to mould me into a classical player, basically. Not that I was looking to be a professional classical pianist, but here's my little doggy. Sorry, hang on one second, David. This is, this is Minnie. <laughs> She's just come back from the park. Hello! Um, yeah, so I just never mastered improvising on the piano, really. I never felt like I mastered that instrument. And guitar and singing, I never had a lesson. So, ever. So, I was teaching myself. So I had the really this really great kind of soup of the theory of classical piano training and the chord progression and the interval trainings and the, you know, all all of the kind of more practical skills of 
learning music on piano, but I didn't have anyone telling me what to do when it came to guitar and singing. So that was that was really, I think, um, freeing, you know. What made you think you might like to have a go at, at making a living from music? So when I was 16, I played my first gig in a pub in St Andrews and I was obviously underage. So they let me use this back room in the pub to play a gig for my friends at like six o'clock before everyone came in. And um, a, one of the guys who came along was King Creaso, who lives in my town, in my town where I grew up. And... He wasn't King Creaso at the time. He was, was he? No, he wasn't. I think he became became King Creaso, but it was Kenny Anderson when I met him. And in terms of kind of outsider folk musicians, he was like the outsider folk Gaudi of St. Andrews. He, I think, was 10 years older than me. He'd put out a bunch of albums already. He'd toured all over Europe busking. He'd sort of, he was living a really kind of untethered existence off grid really being a musician and it hadn't even occurred to me that that was a possibility and he came to this little show that I put on and just because he came with a friend of mine who he fancied it wasn't because he knew about me and he said he was just really blown away and he, he he he's written journals since he can remember so he's just got like a library of journals so actually not that long ago he found the page where he wrote about seeing me for the first time and just saying that he could just immediately recognise that there was something really special. And pretty much after that gig, he asked me to join his band, um, which was called the Scooby-Doo Orchestra, which was spelt in a kind of Gaelic way. So it's S-K-O-U-B-H-I-D-U-B-H Orchestra. And they were playing quite a lot of self-penned punk speed bluegrass but with a very strong kind of Cayley Scottish influence so it was sort of like this Scottish version of the Pogues a little bit mm. um, and I ended up just at 16 just jumping in a van and going and doing gigs with them and I was doing backing vocals and percussion and playing a cajon and whatever I could get my hands on and that was it I was just completely sold I was like, I don't care. And they didn't have any money. And I was like, I don't care if I ever have any money. I just don't want a job. I want to do this. Where, where did you play? Did you travel across Europe or was it UK? Or? It was mostly just pubs in the UK. It was just like bars and pubs and venues around Scotland. But they did introduce me to busking, those guys. And that was a really important step in my evolution, for sure. Where did you busk? So I started off just locally. I think I didn't want to busk in my hometown because I just felt too self-conscious and I just thought my mum would walk past doing her shopping. And um, so I for, I went to Edinburgh, I went to Dundee, which was rubbish. I would, I, I, I hope the busking in Dundee is, is a little more lucrative than it was back then, which was nothing and getting moved on by the police. Glasgow, and then eventually did a little bit down in London as well. And then I, at 17... I got a scholarship to a school to do my last year of school over in America. And that, and I also did quite a bit playing on the street over there. What would you play? Your self-written stuff? Or... Yeah, I was always really bad at remembering covers. I'm still really bad at it. I've not got a big canon of, of songs that I know the lyrics to. But there was a few. So Perfect by Fairground Attraction was a winner. Sit Down by James or Laid. It was Laid by James that I used to play. Um, Jesus Gonna Be Here by Tom Waits. Strange one to be in there, but it's a great song to play. And what else did I play? Um, 
trying to think. Were, were there like bankers that, that you play this song, you get more money? Definitely, 100%. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm always always a big believer that when people arrive, you know, people, people sort of have overnight success that they've spent years and years building up to. When you broke big, the first time I saw you, you were just so fully formed as a performer. Did, did you learn some of those skills back there? Yeah, very much so. I think what what I learned from starting from absolute scratch in terms of, you know, playing on the street and playing in restaurants. And you know, I used to play in a little restaurant in Edinburgh for 20 quid for three hours and get my dinner, and which was a great mm. gig. <laughs> and uh, I remember when I was busking and playing in cafes and restaurants and stuff, you know, it's it's humbling because you're not there because you're invited. Well, you know, in the restaurants you were, it was a gig, but you're background music, basically. And especially playing on the street, you know, I get really shirty if someone's using an amp and just blasting themselves because that's not the point of that. I think that goes against the art of street performance. That The art of street performance is being so engaging that someone stops. Mm. Not blasting them at number 11 so they haven't got any choice of whether to listen to you or not they've not come to see you they've they're they're busy people are doing doing whatever they're doing and at restaurants they're meeting friends and they're having a meal and but i i used to be playing in the restaurant and i'd be i just i kind of laser focus on one person eating their dessert and go i'm going to be so good i'm going to make that person look up and sometimes i did and sometimes i didn't but the busking was a very very um uh, you know, steep learning curve in terms of performance that, first of all, you've just got to get over feeling self-conscious. I felt so mortified the first time I ever did it. And then the second day I went out and I was absolutely fine. And understanding performance, understanding how to entertain a crowd of people. And also it was a great kind of, um, it was a great breeding ground for trying out my own stuff and seeing what worked and then kind of going even deeper and seeing within each song what worked and on the on the whole intros are always too long folks don't bore (laughs) us get to the chorus cut down your intro it sounds a bit like um do you know the story of the beatles going to hamburg and they had to play ridiculous hours yeah and they learn how to work an audience it sounds very similar yeah there was a really really challenging gig that i got and it was an amazing gig to get at the time because i was unemployed and just trying to get you know trying to get somewhere with music and um karen corin at the edinburgh festival i still haven't been able to find her to give her a hug gave me a gig at the bear pit which says it all is this edinburgh students union and it was between one and three in the morning for a month every day during the festival it was carnage but she paid me in the band and it was just to get a month's paid work was just like an alien had come and granted all our wishes you know it just didn't seem possible and actually at the end of that our band split up because we re- <laughs> <laughs> it just all went completely pear-shaped and you know I it was a hard lesson of just going okay if you're playing to one to three in the morning actually I think all of these people would have a better time if I was just playing covers you know and it's just a kind of party gig rather than it's entertainment versus art really you know and so I learned a huge amount during that. I also learned what it looks like when your bandmate is is developing a bad cocaine habit, which was less <laughs> less pleasant than any of it. 
but it was a very it was a it was a real learning experience and after that month which I think must have been in about 97 I would think I just I dropped all the band stuff stopped and basically stopped worrying about trying to get A&R people up to Scotland I was like I have to just go to London and play down there and see if I can get a deal which I didn't really want to do but I wasn't having any luck doing it any other way and did, did you move down on, on your own? Or? There was no way I was going to move down to London with no money. I, I knew that that was just a complete nightmare. Like, living in Edinburgh with no money is is not as hard as as living in Edinburgh, in London. And so I was like, I'm not going down there penniless. It's just too grim. But I just basically ditched the whole band thing and just started making almost monthly trips down to London where my friend Tim let me sleep on he said I could sleep on the couch but I felt so bad sleeping on the couch because his housemate had to get up at 7am and make her coffee and get ready for work that I actually pulled the couch away from the wall and slept behind the couch (laughs) (laughs) so I went down to London and slept behind Tim's couch once a month and what were you doing in London? Did you did you have shows? Or was it sort of open mic night type situations? It was open mic nights, just trying to get open mic nights wherever I could and, and busking as well. But also I managed to befriend an amazing guy called Tony Moore, who he was in Cutting Crew, actually. He set up, I'd heard, I managed to find out about this open mic night at, at a place called the Cashmere Club, which was a little basement in Marlebone. And um, that's actually where I ended up getting signed. But well, somebody had seen you play there and, and... Yeah, it was an industry haunt as well. It was really cool because Tony basically set up this... So, I mean, this is this pertains to our conversation, really, is that when I was in Edinburgh, I just couldn't get a gig. And so I ended up going down to London and meeting Tony, doing the Cashmere Club, and it was this really cool club where it was free to get in, but your payment was silence. You were not allowed to talk during performances. Mm. And that was the most valuable environment I've probably ever been in in my whole career. Just to be able to be heard and to have the opportunity to play for people in the industry. So industry people would show up there to watch new people. And I mean, tons of people came through, like Karina Round, Narina Palo, James Blunt was down there. I think Cheryl Crow ended up making like an appearance. And it was also one of the first clubs in the world, I think, that did an, a web live stream. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, it was this little pizza place under the street with like the rain dripping through. It was awesome. And um, and so actually I had because I was inspired by that, I set up the same thing of my own back in Edinburgh called Acoustic Extravaganza. And it was um, twice a month on Thursdays and one was a singer songwriter night and one was a band night. And it was the same thing. I just found a bar. It was the Gilded Saloon bar, actually, which burnt down, sadly, but. They they just agreed that I could put a night on. We didn't charge tickets. They they weren't getting a lot of footfall because it's you know more about the festival. Um, and so we just had these packed out nights in the bar where the bar made loads of money and no one had to pay to get in and people got listened to. Were you paid for for that? We could sell our tapes, you know, and that was that was the that was the payoff that you you could sell CDs and tapes. You, you said you you got signed in the Kashmir. How how did you move from these clubs? So I I've basically been trying to network the whole time myself and and just try and get meetings with 
people and I had a great mentor in Edinburgh called Bobby Heatley um, who's got a rehearsal and recording studio called Colour Sound and he he had recognised that I was talented and Kenny, Kenny Anderson King Creuser at the time was very very anti-label he just didn't he'd really lost faith in the music industry so was doing it very much outside of it and I was realising that I just wasn't going to be able to make a living if I didn't try and engage with it with the kind of music that I was making I remember Vic Galloway on he's a friend actually and it was on Scottish radio and I would he was doing the Scottish radio one spot and I would just be like come on Vic why won't you play my stuff and he said I can't it needs to be on Joe Wiley it can't be on my show it's too mainstream and I you know I was totally livid at him at the time and then I got it on Joe Wiley <laughs> I just I ended up, Joe Wiley was the first person who played my music, you know, just persevered. Do, do you have any networking tips? It's really, really tough to call yourself and try and get in. I don't know, I just don't know what it's like mm. now doing that, whether that's even sort of possible. So what what worked in the end for me, and it didn't really work, you know, I got in front of a few people, but I didn't really, what it did was it was little, little stepping stones towards, you know, greater things where I got a very, very bad publishing offer from a company. And because of that, I then was able to talk to a manager who said he would help me get something really much better on the back off the back of that because it was a bit of leverage um and that's what happened but i think the best advice really in that field is just be prepared and ready and rehearsed to play your three best songs anywhere for anyone so it, if that means you're going to go and play in a really sterile office with strip lighting and one dude in a shirt sitting at the end of the table, make sure you're prepared for that because that could be it. That happened to me in America when I went into the Today Show offices and I happened to have my guitar with me and they usually book stuff weeks and weeks in advance and Black Horse had just kind of broken through one of the American Idol contestants singing it and... He said, well, let me hear you live. And it's just in his office. And I just got my guitar out and played. And he said, all right, we're putting you on the show on Tuesday. And if I hadn't had my guitar and if I hadn't been prepared and if I had got that Jules Holland spot, but I hadn't been ready and I hadn't been really well rehearsed to do a good performance and feel confident, none of it would happen. That, that's fantastic advice. And also don't, don't judge these opportunities, I would say, as well. You just don't know who you're playing for. You don't know who's in the room. You don't know what someone might... You know, there could be someone having a pint at the back who's just like, oh, yeah, my brother or my sister works in so-and-so and they know so-and-so. You just never know. I think as a musician, you've got to, you've got to have a level of stealth. You've got to... You've got to understand that there's a complete layer of hidden opportunity at all times that you can't see. And to really just always... I mean, I, what, the way that I found dealing with it, because it can be really depressing. It can be really hard. I've literally played a gig for three men and a dog. And one of the men was my manager. You know, but these are stories that you'll tell later. And it's it's pay, it's paying your dues, but it can get really depressing 
and you can feel very despondent about things not happening. So really, I think the wisest advice is really dig deep into enjoying performing and playing and expressing yourself. That's got to be the most important thing. I wasn't really hell-bent on getting a big record deal and getting famous and making loads of money or anything like that. It was just, all I wanted was to not have to get a job. That was it. And I was so adamant that I wasn't going to get a job (laughs) that I worked really hard on becoming a good enough performer. And And for me, it was all about being a performer. You know, that's shifted now where I'm... um, And I think it's probably shifted for musicians now where it's it's kind of much more important these days that you can create work yourself to a standard that it can be listened to and played and enjoyed. You know, back, back when I was starting out, I was just doing like eight track tapes just to have something to sell at a gig. I didn't really care about recording but I think that that is now a more important part of the whole picture of representing yourself people there's an expectation that you're going to be able to represent yourself with demos now I think so that would be the advice really as well is get is get good at using some software or a laptop or garage band or logic or pro tools or whatever but find someone in your in your world who can teach you how to get good at that or it's actually I taught myself logic and you, all you do is google it as you're going just google how do I do this how do I do that and there's tons of videos and comments and help pages every time I have a problem I just google it and you can get you can learn something can I ask you who were the key people that helped you build your career and how, how did you come across them so Bobby Heatley was um as I said a rehearsal and studio owner in Edinburgh and he was kind of always going to gigs and getting excited about new artists and so he he I think must have seen me at a gig and then said you know can can I can I give you some support and he ended up being a a really really important person in my evolution because he gave me free rehearsal time he gave me free studio time he helped me record things um and he really gave me an amazing piece of advice which which set the course of my life in music which was don't sign a record deal for money and I said well how do you do that because I don't have any money and he said get a publishing deal first and as a writer of my own material I think that was an amazing piece of advice was I I signed my publishing deal first and I actually didn't sign my record deal for two years after that and it gave me a chance to calibrate having some money in the bank, moving to London, writing with other people, which I'd never done before, which they facilitated for me, which I didn't love. I found a, a very small number of people that I love co-writing with, but that is worth it. There, It's a, it's really special when you find the, the right people. And so by the time I was getting my record deal, which wasn't easy, even though I had a publishing deal, I just chose the right deal. I didn't even... I, I mean, I only ended up really with one option because... Um, the other ones kind of fell away, but it put me in a position where I could take a little bit more time to make decisions, big decisions. What was the criteria for choosing a choosing the label, if not for money? What were you looking for? It was the deal itself. So even the deal I signed was pretty brutal. It was five albums and the advance was sort of over these five different options. And of course, the record label can drop you at any time, but you can't drop them. 
but really it was to avoid this 360 stuff that was start, that was happening avoid having any of my publishing involved in the record deal avoiding having any of my live income or merchandise income being involved in the record deal so it was really just finding the safest deal i could find would you advise that that's that's something that people who are in the same situation today should look at. There's a reason why, I mean, there's a reason why record labels still exist. You know, they're not, they're not devoid of, of power and use in today's scene. But I would be extremely, extremely wary of signing a record deal in these times. If you are having any sort of success individually and independently I would advise seeing how far you can push that on your own because record labels don't have the same power that they used to have and it's not a good it's not a good equation when it comes to the labels they're taking I mean my deal I think they're you know we're on I don't know like it changes every album but it's like 85 15 70, 30, you know, it's, you're not going to get anything really, unless, and this is the, this is the argument for the the independent labels, which do much better deals in terms of um, splits. So you can, you can probably find a 50, 50 split with a good independent label, but the reach of the majors is still significant. You know, they've got in-house PR, in-house radio pluggers, in-house, art teams in-house videographers i mean it's it it's a there's a whole world of support system to try and launch an artist which when you do it yourself the cost racks up enormously but then you know the other side of it is is becoming savvy is becoming you know very as self-sufficient as you possibly can because you can make a great video with your iphone Download a few apps and you can you can make a great music video. You can record stuff on your laptop that's good enough quality to release. It doesn't take an awful lot. And so I think just, you know, young musicians would, I would say, need to be very, very careful when they weigh up what they're getting for giving all of that away, all of that percentage of your ownership away and probably your masters as well. I, I guess that's when you want people like managers and lawyers involved on your side yes for sure and um so my manager did a good deal for me when I first started which I really appreciated which was he said he would work for me for six months with no contract with no commission um but that if I that if he got me a deal that he got his 20% and we signed a contract and that's what we did. So your your manager came on board after the publishing deal, is, is that right? So I got offered a tiny publishing deal for like 12 grand for everything I'd ever written and everything I was ever going to write. It was like horrendous. Um, but I didn't know and it was a lot of money to me, you know. And, and we'd met, I think, uh, through... He'd seen me play at the garage. I'd done like an open night, mic night at the garage and had got in touch with me. You know, you're giving out your number and you've got a little business card and you're giving out tapes and stuff and trying to you just never know who's going to call you and yeah he called me saying he, he kind of just called up saying what's going on and I said and I think we'd been in touch and I maybe told him I've got this deal what do you I think I told him I got offered this thing and I don't know if it's any good and he was like 
uh, it's crap, but it's a deal offer, which means you're on the way. Um, so I was very proud to get that first offer myself. That's what kicked it all off. You know, it, it involved some very bizarre meetings with some really weird people <laughs> and very odd situations, but it was very colourful. And and then my first manager uh, and I started working together and he very quickly, he'd never been a manager before. He was a, an A&R guy, but he... Um, he managed to get us in a scenario where Chrysalis and Sony were both interested. And so that really kind of, it was a whole new level by that point. Did you have a lawyer or did that come later? A lawyer is going to be expensive. It's going to cost, it's going to be a bit eye-watering. But having a lawyer look after, look over your contracts is imperative. And it has to be an independent person. You can't have the record label suggest a lawyer to you and it's best actually I never had the same lawyer as my uh, manager either there's just there's too much conflict of interest and um, so I've had the same lawyer as I started with many 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 years ago now and it's definitely a very deep investment but I am willing in the world of music being pretty crooked here and there um I'm happy to pay that cost so that I trust them. And how often would you talk to them? It depends. It really just depends. You know, if I'm on tour, then I'm not talking to the lawyer. But it's any time I get offered a big sync offer for something or if I'm going to sign or if I get offered to do something for TV or film and there's different publishing necessities in there because the film studio needs to keep some of the publishing and there's got to be some liaison between them and Sony. And then every time... uh, Every time a record came up, you would be you would then be what's called taking up the option of going on to the next record, work it, still working with the record label, and that would require some, uh, you know. And you just have to be careful because if you don't read the fine print, you sign it, and there's no going back. You've signed it, so it is an important part of it. And it was a part of it I always found really dull, and I really didn't kind of enjoy being engaged with the more business elements and I definitely paid the price. I wish I'd knuckled down and got to know the business side of it a bit better. How have you done so? Is it just through experience or asking questions? Or... Just through really realising that my whole career was a bit of a mess behind the scenes and it needed cleaning up. And so I went through another manager and then I got another manager who and finally ended on the right management to kind of clean it all up and try and make it run more efficiently as a business it was just you know it's like any it's like my my current manager gave me a really good analogy he said look you've just been like a cage fighter who's going into these cage fights battering each other going for it winning but being really really injured and you're not repairing injuries after and he and the analogy go is about these contracts and business changes and deals made and people that I work with and not really doing any due diligence and not doing any and not learning from experience basically and you know without going into fine details there was there was a lot of mess left behind from that lack of diligence and no one's going to care about your 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 career more than you do Mm -hmm. not even your manager no one 
they've got other people to worry about too. It's like you, you have to... I remember reading that Madonna would kind of go to every accountancy meeting and keep everyone there an hour longer than they needed to be because she was going through all these questions. And I was just like, that's crazy. Why would you do that? And then I learned why. <laughs> I learned why. That's how... That's how you run a very, very successful business. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about making a living doing this. And I think my experience of kind of for the first, certainly for the first sort of six, seven years of my career, really just completely delegating and relying on other people to deal with everything, bit me on the arse later down the line. Is there anything that you've done uh, to sort of educate yourself about business stuff? Yes. So I've taken... Um, a more responsible attitude financially. So when I'm doing this sort of quarter end uh, rundown, I pay attention now and I look at what's coming in and I am aware of what's going out. So one of the things that I made a huge mistake on was touring in the early days because it was just such a hate. I was drunk most <laughs> of the time. And it was just, you know, it was just absolute making hay. We were just flying all over the world playing these unbelievable gigs and I had no idea how much my tour was costing and that entire sort of segment of very very successful on the surface gigging could have been handled so much better I could have made so much more money than I did because the expenses were just ridiculous and I didn't need to be spending what I was spending. And I just didn't know what I was spending. I was just going, you you deal with it. You guys deal with it. I don't care. I just want to have fun. So, yeah, just really being aware of of your of what is what's being spent. And how do you find that out? Is, is, is that an accountant or your manager that sits down with you? Accountant, tour manager, manager. You just ask them. You need to tell me and show me what's being spent and I never did that and so you know everyone was just spending the money to make you know often a lot of the time spending money just to make life easier you know the whole band getting cabs instead of saying do you know what it's a three minute tube ride can we not spend a grand today on cabs for everyone (laughs) I guess I guess getting the right people around you as well is help focus your attention on those kind of things that's extremely extremely important it's a roller coaster, the personnel side of it. And I would say to young artists, just really, really keep your ears and eyes open for how someone is representing you, because that's what's happening. If they're working for you as an artist, your name's on the ticket, not theirs. And if your tour manager is behaving unpleasantly everywhere you go, that's going to be on you. It's not going to be on the tour manager, really going to land on you being an unpleasant artist for that venue to have had to deal with and therefore not really that excited about you coming back or playing the bigger venue that they own you know so there's definitely very much worth keeping in mind that the people you meet on the way up you may well meet on the way down (laughs) so I mean that's a pretty simple lesson it's just don't be an arsehole (laughs) it doesn't serve you it never will but also, I would say, you know, really do not tolerate behavior that is beneath your standard when it comes to the people that you work with. And it's 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 a it's a confusing world because, you know, once you're in and up and running 
and you're, say, on a tour bus, there's like 12 of you on there getting hammered together. And it just feels like a big party. But you ha- I-, I didn't remember this, but you're the boss. You're the boss. People are going to behave a little differently with you than they do with other people. I've found out many times over the years that people who've been behaving very well in front of me have not been behaving well to other people when I'm not there. Is it gut gut feel with people? Do you have to depend on that to a certain extent? A little, but the best the best um the best way of doing it is recommendation. Is 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 having someone you trust give you suggestions of who they've worked with that they've enjoyed working with. That's that's almost always my way of choosing people to work. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I very rarely work with someone completely blind. And it's a, it's a pretty small community. People, people do know each other. So, but you know, at the same time, it's, it, it's, it's a funny business because there's, on, especially on the road, there's just no rules. You know, there's no HR. There's no number to call if you feel you're being bullied or if you feel that you've been hard done by. It's very, it's a bit wild, you know. And so just because someone's been on another tour and it's okay to do something, you can say it's not okay to do that on this tour. And you just you just have to be a bit assertive about it. Yeah, so that's, that depends on confidence, doesn't it, to be... To, to be assertive but you've got to learn that yeah, yeah. And, and that's I mean I think if any if, if there was any skill that kids could be taught in school I would say that assertiveness calm assertiveness would be such a helpful life skill for all of us to learn to be able to navigate being angered by a situation and calmly explaining why um because it's very difficult when you're living in a tin can with a bunch of other people and you're in each other's pockets for 24 hours a day, you know. You see these the people that you're on tour with, you spend more time with them than their family ever will. You're with them all the time. And so you are you are going to rub each other up the wrong way, but most more often than not, you just it just gets pent up and pent up and pent up and then you have a big argument, you know which is maybe the same in the rest of life as well. And I think that's been an important lesson for me is to recognise when something is upsetting me or angering me or not up to my standard and actually just tackling it uh, in a in a grown-up way rather than, you know, waiting until three o'clock in the morning when you've had half a bottle of gin and having a fight. Yeah, calm assertiveness, he said. I think, that, I think that's, that's also good as a, as a negotiating tactic, to be calm, assertive, don't get emotional. Yeah, sticking to your standards, you're going to have a much better time. Because the one thing I will say as well, and it doesn't get talked about an awful lot, is that it can be extremely toxic being on tour and being in music environments, whether it be in record companies. I mean, I've never worked in a record company, but, you know, there's been some quite high profile stuff about people working in the music industry where they've not been treated well. And on tour, it's it looks fun, it is fun, and it can be fun. It can also be extremely hard. If you have a personal issue that's going on that you have to deal with, you've got no personal space, you're in a bunk with 12 other people on the bus, you've got people getting drunk, you've got to do a show every night, you not, haven't necessarily got reception to call the person you need to call, it can get really, really hard. We've all been through that. 
And it's not just hard for you, because if you're having a hard time, then it's probably going to be making it hard for other people being around Mm -hmm. you as well. So you really have to look after your mental health as well. The world of a musician, you've got to look after business. (laughs) You've got to look after your music and your music making, and you've got to look after yourself, haven't you? We've kind of reached the point in the conversation where I'm not, I have to say, I'm not going to lie. It's not an easy path to choose. If you become extremely successful and rich and tour the world and it's all smooth sailing, you might be dreaming (laughs) and need to pinch yourself and wake up. There are very, very extreme moments that push you to the edges of being able to handle it. Because the other thing is that you've always got to stand, step out on stage and perform, no matter what. Mm. Having that conversation with yourself, if it's something that you want to go into, and you've also got the added sort of digital judgment these days, which I didn't have to deal with when I started in terms of your mental health and keeping even keeled through social media these days. Mm. But yeah, having that conversation with yourself how robust do I feel? How ready do I feel? How, how, how thick is my skin? And if it's not, if you, if you don't feel like you have thick skin and you are extremely sensitive, then, and I know many artists who are, by the way, really successful artists who are extremely sensitive people, they have to pick who they work with really, really carefully so that they don't put themselves in a situation where they're they're just constantly bombarded in a damaging way every day by by energy that is very bad for them. You know, there's there's artists I know who don't drink, so they don't work with anyone who drinks. Or they don't do drugs, so there's no one doing no one's allowed, to, you know, they don't want people. It's not even no drugs on the bus. It's like I don't want to work with people who do drugs because that's been a problem for me in the past. So, it's 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 important choices for your well-being, for sure. It's like all growing up, isn't it? And and dealing with life, but in in a fishbowl. Yeah. With yeah. lots of cameras pointed at you. Yeah. And yeah, it must be very, very difficult. And I've never got used to that part of it. I, I really don't like the kind of the public facing part of my job out with being on a stage. I, d- I mm. don't really like it. How, how do you balance your life? Do, do, do you, I mean, I, I, personally been meditating for a few years and I find that's a fantastic thing but how how do you keep yourself together? (laughs) Well I did stop drinking I stopped drinking for about six years because I'd been really hammering it for 10 Mm. years um, and realizing that that was not it was a lot of fun at times but it was getting to a stage where it was really not helpful to me progressing as a person and as an artist and my health had suffered from that. So I, I gave up drinking for about six years. And now I'll just have a nice glass of wine. But I just don't, I'm not interested in this idea of rock and roll being just about getting wasted and trashing stuff. It's just like, nah, it's really not. Because that's how you end up dead. Mm. You know, that's how you end up not having a job anymore. Because you've pissed too many people off or you've gone and done too many rubbish gigs where you're not actually even giving people the value of their ticket because you're not compass mentis enough um and and there's people who'll disagree with me about that and they'll say it's all about the wildness and it's all about the chaos and you know i think that that's 
that's their that's their path and that's their music and my music doesn't doesn't benefit from me lacking clarity and the people the people that I have stayed you know kept meaningful relationships with are the people I have really good memories with and the people that have been you know we've been respectful to one another in those even when it's wild you know and so I would just, you know, and there's a grand long history of musicians dying young. Mm. And this whole idea that you suffer for your art is very dangerous. So just, you know, I've had lots of friends get to the edge and come back. And thankfully, haven't lost anyone close to me. But um, you have to be careful with that and keep, just keep tabs on yourself of how you are. And there might be a point where you need to go, do you know what? I need to not do this for a couple of weeks and just get my head together. Because it's an it's just it is a it's a bombardment of noise and and ambition and pressure uh and disappointment at times as well. And the win is great, don't get me wrong. The win is great when you get that great gig or you win an award or you get your album out or you know I mean the best the best one is just the great gig the great gig that you 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 know it's been good and you finish it and you come off stage and you're like that was a great gig that's unbeatable it's an amazing feeling how how do you allocate your your time um in in between I guess writing and practicing and and then gigging and doing business and my life for the last few years has been frustratingly imbalanced where I just feel like I'm just on the road all the time because I've been quite, um, you know, aspirational with what I'm doing. So I've built a studio at home, like a proper pro studio and moved house and threw everything at the wall on my fifth album, Kin, just to try and kind of restart the engine a little bit. And so it was all very costly. And so I've just had to do stuff to really financially get myself back clear and in a position where I've got some capital to sort of do things that I want to do. Um, So I've just been gigging relentlessly, which was why the pandemic was actually a bit of a relief for me where I could just stop and go home for a bit because I was probably out on the road for nine or ten months of the year, uh, which is too much. I don't want to do that. I'm, I, I don't even, I'd prefer to do half of that. Do you find you can write on the road? No, not at all. Almost never. I think I've written one song that's on an album on the road. <laughs> it's mm. just I can't, can, I can't get free from my immediate surroundings to kind of get into that space. Uh, I, I sort of need to be isolated and I often go on trips to remote places to write. I find that really great to just kind of lock yourself away and go on a trip specifically for writing. Um, but actually my favourite thing now is making stuff. I just love recording. I love being in the studio, which I didn't when I first started. You know, I was not interested in being in the studio at all. And now it's just it's so exciting to me to just make stuff. And I think during this last year, it's been really exciting that we've realised that we can share new material, even if we're not out there playing. Is part of that excitement in making stuff based around the fact that you've taught yourself how to do it? Partly. I mean, if, if it was if it was up to me, I would 
a hundred percent have an engineer here twiddling the buttons. It's much more fun to just be creatively free and not worry about EQs and compression and peaking and microphone position. So it's always really awesome to have um, an engineer handling the technical side of it. But in terms of kind of writing demos and uh, I'm doing a project with a Japanese artist at the moment where she's, we're, we're doing a five track EP where we're co-writing remotely. You know, that stuff's mm. great. Just sitting and being able to lay down tracks for sure. And also I love remixing. I'm, I've got a, my remixing name is Tunnels with a Z on the end. And um, I love doing dance remixes and that stuff's just all sat at the computer. So yeah, it's, and actually, I'll do a lot of my remixing stuff when I'm, well, used to be when I was traveling. I'd be able to just sit and do it on the plane. And certainly having that um, knowledge of recording. I mean, I'm on my seventh, well, I've done a couple of acoustic records, so like eight, eighth or ninth record now. And every time you make a record, you're learning in every studio you go and work in. And so it's a kind of built up secondhand knowledge as well. But the more that you can learn about that, the more you can communicate what you want something to sound like when you're working with people, which is really useful. You, Katie, you, you've been absolutely fantastic. And I'm conscious we're, we're eating into your day. Yeah. But could, could we finish with just a, the, there's a traditional question I ask at the end of these chats, which is, you know, are, are there any um, things that you've picked up from your personal experience or from other artists habits attitudes etc that up-and-coming musicians uh, could learn and benefit from I think as a musician you need to expect to have to work hard you're going to have to put a lot of effort in you're not necessarily going to get a lot back at times sometimes you'll get everything and more but to have a consistent work ethic towards what you're doing and a sincerity towards what you're doing you know everybody wants to go out and have a laugh and have fun and it should be but I would say if I could do it all again I would definitely be a little firmer in terms of the standards I was holding everyone around me to musicians business people record company people everyone I would there's there's times I just haven't said my piece and stood my ground about certain things and you're going to get called difficult you're going to get called a nightmare to work with you're going to get called unmanageable and so what you've just got to take it on the chin that's what makes you an artist and I would that's what I would say you've got to stand up for yourself absolutely all I can say is thank you very much that, that, that was just a wonderful conversation you know it's I, I I really feel for young artists out there it's extremely challenging in a way that it never was before right now and I feel like we're in a kind of pivotal moment where the world is realizing that just recording and releasing music is not a tenable career the way that it's set up but it could be with some small changes in these ridiculous streaming percentages um so I'm hoping things improve a bit there's some great people fighting the front lines of changing how this works but um yeah just be careful what you sign mm. <laughs> no thank you very much thank you for um giving your time to us and uh, your wisdom i thought there's some fantastic stories and advice 
I hope it's helpful. I'm sure it will be. Thank you very much. Thank you to all of my guests who have taken the time to talk with me. And thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank Miles D, who has written and recorded the Gigami theme music. And as ever, if you have been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, if you have any questions, or if you just want to get in touch with me, go to gigami.co. That is G-I-G-O-M-I dot C-O. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.